If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, March the 28th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in Hoover's recording studio, deep in the heart of a very dark Stanford University campus because it's 6 a.m. here, Hugh Hewitt. Who is Hugh Hewitt, you ask? He is the proverbial one-man band. He's the host of a syndicated talk show that broadcasts live across the country on the Salem Radio Network weekday mornings, 6 to 9 a.m. East Coast time. On Saturday mornings, you'll find him hosting a one-hour show on MSNBC, and he's also a columnist for The Washington Post. He just wrote a piece on John Bolton this week that I encourage you to go check out. And what passes for Hugh Hewitt's spare time, he also writes books. That includes 2017's The Fourth Way, the conservative playbook for a lasting GOP majority. Hugh, welcome to the show. And Bill Whalen, thank you for having me. I'm a draft neck deep in the heart of the Browns draft as we prepare to dominate the NFL on the ascendancy of the Cleveland Browns. So we sit here in the universe, as you like to call it, 6 a.m. It's only you, me, and a bunch of guys going to work in the trading centers on the West Coast to see what happens to Facebook today. How do you do this day in and day out? Well, on the West Coast, I broadcast from 3 to 6 a.m. because mm-hmm. it's a morning drive East Coast show. And so you have to change your life, and you have to go to bed at 7.30. It's the only the constant in my life. On the East Coast, getting up at 5.30 is nothing. I'm in California to teach at Chapman Law School, Fowler School of Law, January through uh, April, constitutional law and the First Amendment, as I have been doing since 1996. But I'm a resident of Virginia now, and we go back to Virginia in the last week of April, and we stay there to December. And 5.30 in the morning is nothing. I mean, in fact, most productive people in the world will tell you, you got to have your feet on the floor before 6 a.m. or you're not you're not going to get anything done. Right. So this has not been a direct path for you, this life that you lead right now. You um, grew up in Ohio, went to Harvard. Uh, Your journey includes law school, the courts, uh, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon. You worked for uh, Richard Nixon's library for a short period of time. How did you make the segue into what you're doing now? Failure, originally. I failed to get into Harvard Law School or Michigan Law School, and I was an arrogant 21-year-old, and I wanted to go to either of those law schools out of Harvard, and they both said no. And uh, lacking a job, um, Ed Mansfield wandered by and said, I know a guy. The eight most important words in the language are, I know a guy, and have you ever considered? (laughs) And Ed said, I know a guy named Ray Price, who you know, uh, Bill. And Ray was... Nixon speechwriter. Yeah, Nixon speechwriter. He needs a research assistant, so I went down to Washington, D.C., and Ray had forgotten I was coming, which is not a good sign, in 1978. He said, but, you know, they might need some help on David Eisenhower's uh, team in San Clemente. He's working a book called Eisenhower at War. He was the only one working on it. I was the second member of the team. And after four months, I went to work for Richard Nixon in exile at the Elba of America in San Clemente in right. 1978. That's when I got to know RN. After two years, he moved to New York. I went to law school because I New York destroyed my finances, and the president agreed that you can be really rich or really poor, but not in between in New York. Mm -hmm. And after Michigan, went down and joined the D.C. Circuit, clerked, and then into the Reagan administration. And when that was done, I came out to practice law and build the Nixon Library and to intend to practice law. I'm still practicing law with Larson O'Brien in Los Angeles 30 years later. But since then, every media job I have held, people have approached me. So it's an unusual media career. I've not pursued it uh, but I do believe when people call you up and say, have you ever considered, and Bill, you probably have lived this way if you think about it, mm-hmm. you've got to pause and say, sure, that might be working. 
Right. What the hey, why not? Uh, would Richard Dixon, the ultimate political strategist, would he be able to get his head around what's happened to the Republican Party in the last couple of years? Very much so. In fact, I read yesterday a great piece by Sean Trendy at RCP, how Nixon anticipated Trump in many ways, as did Reagan in some ways, which you might disagree with, as did Pete Wilson in his second run for governor. Right. You must occasionally touch the populist tenor uh, chords in the Republican Party because you can't win with just the purists. I'm a kind of a purist. I'm a Buckley conservative. Mm -hmm. But you've got to go and be able to bring in, as Nixon did with the Southern strategy in 68, populist right. uh, uh, crossovers. I love to tell people, Bill, and you're a political junkie, I'm from Warren, Ohio. Trumbull County voted 59 percent for Al Gore in 2000, 60% mm -hmm. for John Kerry in 2004, 61% or nearly that for President Obama twice, and 55.5% for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Now you tell me, you're the political scientist, is that an earthquake, a tsunami? What, how do you describe that? That's so unusual. It is unusual. Uh, we could call it a one-off if you want to, but I'm very curious to see if Trump can replicate it in 2020. I think come 2020, if he does it again, then maybe we can put the, the proper adjective to it. As he well says as he's running. Do you think he is, or do we have 68 all over again in front of us? I have been writing columns for the last year suggesting that he's James K. Polk, that he that he declares the four things that he set out to do. He declares he's done them all, and he does the mic drop, and he walks off. But now I'm reneging in part because he said he's running, but, you know, believe it when you see it. But if you figure, Hugh, that Trump ran in 2016 in large part just to drive people crazy and show that he could do this and actually win, then what's stopping him from running again? The same motivation, knowing it disorients people and, again, proving he could do the improbable, he could be reelected. Because to drop the mic. To drop the mic. And I think you're very perceptive. I'm going to steal that term. I may attribute it to you and Hoover, but I'm probably just going to do the radio <laughs> thing and steal it. Uh, but it, it, it is to do the proverbial political drop mic that reverberates through history. You just mentioned Polk. Nobody yep. mentions Buchanan. Right. Uh, you just mentioned Polk. Nobody mentions Millard Fillmore. When right. you do what you set out to do, which is to disrupt, argue, I mean, this North Korean thing, he tweeted this morning, uh, President Xi of China called him or, or communicated, he left it vague, mm -hmm. that Kim Jong-un is looking forward to the meeting. Some, I have to think, I hope it's a few, would prefer that Donald Trump fail in this than he win because it would totally blow their heads if Donald Trump secured mm -hmm. the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But he got his first trade deal yesterday. Right. He's put 14 members of the U.S. Court of Appeals, originalists all, as strong as any that Reagan came up with, Right. Uh, of course, uh, Neil Gorsuch is a terrific justice. The, tra the tax deal is wonderful. The deregulatory uh, push has been complete. Um, if you don't pay attention to what he says mm -hmm. and only what he's accomplished, you're a happy Republican. Right. But I'm a Victorian, so I don't like his style. I like the courtly, gentlemanly style of Ronald Reagan and Pete Wilson, your old mentor and boss, and uh, uh, I like that style. That's not Donald Trump's style, but you can't argue with points on the board, right? If you if you got an ugly swing, you still drive the ball 340. You still drove the ball 340. Let's talk about the Trump style for a moment. February 26, 2016, there is a Republican debate. You are one of the moderators. You asked Donald Trump a rather straightforward question to what you say, Mr. Trump. You've been on my show in the past, and I've asked you if you promised to release your taxes, and you said you do indeed promise that you will release them. You have not. So you asked him in that debate, do you still plan to do so? And what did Donald Trump do? He remarked, quote, very few people listen to your radio show. What happened? This happens to be true. Check out the ratings to your credit. 
you sat there and you took it. You didn't you didn't shoot back at him, but he dumped on you on Nationwide TV. Fifteen times in 2016, I believe, he was on your radio show. That's as, correct. As a candidate, you jousted with him four times in primary debates. Do you still have a relationship with Donald Trump? I don't right now. You do not. I have Trump tattoos, uh, and so I wear them proudly. Uh, we tangled on the nuclear triad on Hassem Soleimani on the Quds Kurds. Some of those were my mistakes. Some of those were his mistakes. I hope to get back in their arena with him. But I am an NBC person right now. And so the impediment to my interviewing the president is NBC, with whom he is engaged in a constant war. Not quite the, the throwing of rocks every day that goes on with CNN, but a lower-level confrontation. And Chuck Todd is my friend, and he doesn't like Chuck for some reason. Uh, and the president... We'll warm up eventually. I just finished writing a review of a book about Ron Kessler's new book, The Trump White House, which is favorable. I, I call balls and strikes. I have no desire to go in the administration. I don't want anything from anyone. Right. And so um, I'm kind of dangerous in the media like you. If you don't want anything, people can't seduce you with offers of interviews and things. I'd love to talk to him. I think he ought to go back to the strategy that was winning for him in 2015 of talking to everyone all the time about anything. Mm -hmm. He's charming. Right. He's actually the best interview in America, but he is withdrawn from the public. So he doesn't talk to Anderson anymore, or um, you had Mark Preston on campus at the Hoover Institution this week. Uh, Mark played Trump in our debate prep. For CNN. And right. For CNN. And would berate me. The reason I didn't flinch, that was nothing. <laughs> As Dustin Hoffman said in Wag the Dog, this is nothing. Mark Preston would insult my wife. He would tell me, you know fat and ugly and old and, and which are all true and you know I, I really don't care because it's not about the reporters it's about the candidate right so one thing Trump will notice is that you wrote a very favorable column about John Bolton in the Washington Post which is not the sort of thing that typically appears in the Washington Post John Bolton is an antichrist as far as the Washington yes. Post is concerned that's putting it mildly what is it about John Bolton that you like? You've worked with him in the Reagan years, right? Uh, yes, he was the assistant attorney general for civil when I was a briefcase carrier special assistant for two attorneys general. So not uh, not a colleague. I got to know him later in life as right. a friend and as a uh, supporter of his pack and as a frequent radio and television guest and as a, a very avid reader of his memoir, Surrender is Not an Option. I love memoirs, Bill. I read them closely if I believe you've written them. I didn't read uh, George Tenet's. I didn't think he wrote it. Red Rummies, Cheney's, W's, um, and the very best is John Bolton. Surrender is not an option. He doesn't forget a thing. He's got a photographic memory. And uh, what he is is an iron butt diplomat. He talks a tough game because he wants to secure the objective without going to war. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the, uh, in the Washington community don't understand the difference between words and actions and how diplomacy is supported by a vigorous defense. I think he, Mattis Pompeo, uh, Gina Haspel, who I do not know, mm -hmm. and John Kelly make up one of the finest foreign policy teams since late Reagan, which your friend George Schultz, James Baker, Howard Baker, Frank Carlucci. Uh, you go out to the CIA. I'm trying to remember who was at the late CIA after Casey came in. Oh, I know who it was. Bob Gates. Right. Uh, and so I mean, how do you beat that level of talent? Donald Trump's assembling a team that comes close. Not there yet, but coming close. What do you think changed uh, in terms of Trump's view of Bolton? Because Bolton was in the interview process the first time. We've heard all kinds of rumors, one being the droopy mustache. But what what do you think changed Trump this time around? Uh, the president's been in the job a year. Mm -hmm. It is typical of the first year of any new president that they learn how doggone difficult the job is and how it's got to be staffed out. 
and staff work matters, more so than a developer. I've always explained to Donald Trump, to people who ask me about Donald Trump, I think he's the perfect combination of a real estate developer, permit-driven, what do I need to be in the room that I'm in with the people who I'm talking to within the bounds of the law, and a movie producer who's producing a very long rough cut. His tweets are his director's notes, his off-the-cuff remarks are his comments to himself, and the rough cut goes on and on and on, but he realizes that he can make his movie and develop his project, get his permits, but he needs staff. And when it comes to competence, there just is no one more competent than John Bolton. He will sit there all night long. My friend Robert O'Brien said on my radio show this morning, he's a litigator's litigator, which produces astonishing levels of preparation for which most in journalism are not prepared. Mm -hmm. You are a Reagan conservative. You called yourself a Victorian Reagan conservative. That How do you process Stormy Daniels? Uh, I don't. Uh, I'm a Roman Catholic, and I am a Victorian, and I reject personal behavior that violates ordinary norms, though I'm guilty, as anyone else is, of always violating ordinary norms that are expected of one people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not proud about it, and, and I would urge everyone, not just the president, to reconsider, especially during Holy Week, their own personal shortcomings and to make amends for them. I, as a Victorian, I don't believe the public is served by conversation about porn stars. I said the same thing during Clinton, but I supported the impeachment of Clinton not because he had an affair, but because he lied about it under oath, mm -hmm. which is why I don't think the president ought to sit down with Mr. Mueller, because uh, there's an argument that you can't indict a president. Walter Dellinger wrote a good piece yesterday arguing you can indict, but you cannot try, which right. is a new thing. Um, but you can only remove via impeachment. There's no upside for him in sitting down with Mueller. Zero. And uh, I've urged that he hire my law partner, Stephen Larson, which is bad for me because I have to leave the firm. I have to recuse myself and resign from the firm. But, but Stephen Larson is the best white-collar defense lawyer in America. And, and he's not taking it seriously enough because if Dellinger's right, he can be indicted and tried subsequent to his leaving office, even if he isn't impeached. What do you think the end game is here, though? Is it just the continued humiliation of Donald Trump in his personal life? Is it trying to somehow get Trump's lawyer afoul of law so you can somehow drag him into the Russia investigation and flip him and thus prove in some way that Trump has involved in Russian collusion? If you're the Democrats, Hugh, what do you think Stormy Daniels serves as a means to? There is no end here. They ought to be fighting Donald Trump on the destruction of Obamacare, which they ought to be arguing was working. I don't believe it was. But that is why they lost the election, in my view, is that those premium hikes hit mm -hmm. uh, in October when early voting happened. Yes, Comey influenced the results of the election. Former Secretary of State Clinton came on my radio show. We talked for a couple of hours. She had never once come on before. She kind of admitted that maybe if she'd done some civilized conservative radio, she might have won. Right. Uh, and I'm civil. But she lost because of, of Comey and those Obamacare premiums. If the Democrats do not develop a policy platform that's coherent for the working man in Trumbull County, they're gonna lose. Tim Ryan is the scariest Democrat. Congressman that I went to high school with, different different years, he's younger than I am, but we both went to John F. Kennedy Roman Catholic High School in Warren, Ohio, quarterback at Penn State, at uh, a Youngstown State. Ryan scares me, Joe Biden scares me. Kamala Harris is probably gonna be the nominee. She's gonna cut like Sherman to the sea through the Democratic primaries, absent a blocking motion uh -huh. that the Republicans could never organize. But they got to get back to their base, and they just can't run on Stormy Daniels because it's all baked into the pie. There isn't an American out there who's surprised by this. I mean, do you think there is? No. Uh, the other thing that surprised me but actually saddened me was that uh, 60 Minutes had its best ratings in eight years. So that either speaks to just the public's insatiable appetite for tawdriness or that 60 Minutes has had some really bad programming for it's the last both. eight years. Or, uh, as Secretary Clinton said to me, you can hold two thoughts at one time. 
Uh, and, and in fact, 22 million is a big number. That's how many watched the Reagan Library debate uh, with President Trump. And we were blown away at the demand for theater. And the reason he won was he was the most experienced performer on the stage, and he had methodically reduced his strongest opponent, much like Grant. Mm-hmm. I will fight on this line if it takes all summer. He won 11 out of 12 debates, the other one he didn't participate in, because he always concentrated on the number one target. Got to take out Jeb, low-energy Jeb. Got to take out little Marco. Right. Uh, go after Chris Chris. He did what he had to do. Right. Uh, let's talk a minute about talk radio and cable news and the role that it plays in the process. You are 62 Two, years old, correct. if I'm not mistaken. How many 62-year-old people are there floating around on cable news right now? Um, more than you would think, more than I would but, think. but it's easy to miss them amidst the kids. Right. Uh, and I was on, uh, for example, Meet the Press this weekend, and I was the oldest person on the set by 15 years, right. maybe 20. And uh, Robert Costa and Casey Hunt, who are terrific journalists and mm-hmm. fine, nonpartisan, objective journalists, went to high school together in Philadelphia, and I think they're 30. Right. And so I'm 62. And, and as I mentioned, Bob Costa's dad and I, Tom uh, Costa, we're buddies. Right. Uh, we talk Eagles and Browns football. He's my contemporary. There's a lot to be said, though, for some gray hair because I was able to pull up an analogy to Howard Baker, James Baker, George Schultz, Frank Carlucci, and, and uh, the other Reaganauts that maybe isn't instantly accessible to people who haven't been around a while. Right. So... Does talk radio and cable news change this anytime soon? This just work. What frustrates me is watching shows, and this is, I'm not saying only at MSNBC. Every Alphabet Soup network does this. You have on very attractive young men and women in their 20s. They have very kind of thin backgrounds in politics. They've worked for somebody on the Hill for a couple of years, typically, or they've worked in a campaign. And there they are, and they're uh, asked to give a hot take on what's going to happen to North Korea. <laughs> and you stop and you think to yourself, what could they find North Korea on a map? Number one, but number two, is this really what we've come to in news? We're asking people who just don't know anything about the topic to give us the hot take. <laughs> Those are not news networks. Right. They are entertainment networks right. whose principal source of content is the news. Right. And the nightly news with Lester Holt remains a very, very as the CBS franchise, as the ABC franchise, reliable old school news. And I read every morning the Times of London, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, in that order, so I end up at the right place. And they are, they still have standards. There are uh, websites like the National Review Powerline, which are full of intellectuals. Um, Cable is wrestling. Mm -hmm. It's world wrestling. It's an exhibition of news. And uh, it's got great ratings because the producers and the talent know what people like to do at home. But what's funny, the younger the participants, the older the audience, right. which is why talk radio is never going to go away till we all die. And I'm one of the younger talk radio hosts, uh, and nobody knows how old you are on the radio. They only know how much energy is in your voice. Exactly. There's the famous German observation about the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, World War One. They said, shackled to a corpse. <laughs> can't you argue, Hugh, that talk radio and cable news, they're shackled to Donald Trump? In terms, of, in terms of just driving entertainment every day, in terms of rating. In fact, in the Trump presidency, who is not profiting off the Trump presidency right oh, now? Oh, Trump is great for ratings. Best interview in the world. I'd have him on every day. I right. used to say that. When he would come on, I would just be, uh, even when he was mad at me over Kutz Kurds and not hearing me correctly and all that kind of stuff, uh, I'd have him back the next day. Right. And, and the reason is wildly entertaining. Now, Talk radio is different from everything else in that I had a long conversation with Joe Lieberman today Mm -hmm. about his brand new book about when the Jews left Israel and headed to Sinai and the 50-day journey and what it means for the rule of law. You ain't going to hear that on cable. 
Right. Uh, you're just not. We did 14 minutes on his book. Robert C. O'Brien was on to do uh, 12 minutes on John Bolton and what he was like as a negotiator at the UN. You're not going to hear that on cable. Mm -hmm. The average cable segment is four minutes. Uh, when I went back to do Meet the Press, I spoke for three minutes. But in those three minutes, I was able to make the case for John Bolton to four million people, so it's worth it. I believe there isn't a market. And my friend Mark Levin, the great one, is showing on Sunday Night on Fox mm -hmm. that hundreds of thousands, millions of people will tune in for a Buckley approach to television. Nobody believes me in TV, but I tell them, and here's my example, Bill. Joy Reid is my friend, but my ideological opposite. Right. David Farenthold, Pulitzer Prize winner, and I were in Hartford, Connecticut two weeks ago tomorrow night, or Friday night, um, the first night of March Madness, and there were 2,500 people who paid cash money to come hear us talk about the media. People are hungry for serious conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, the movie Goodfellas, Hugh, Henry Hill, is recounting as his young boy is getting whipped by his father, and he has the great line, everybody takes a beating sometimes. Are the Republicans taking a beating this fall? Uh, I'm beginning to be more optimistic. Optimistic. Um, why, why for so? a couple of reasons. I was with Doug Ducey on Tuesday, the best governor in America. Governor of Arizona. Governor of Arizona. Right. He is rolling out a comprehensive plan of response to the threat of school killings. Our mm -hmm. problem is not a gun problem. It is a killer problem. How do we stop killers of the fanatic Islamist time, like at the Orlando night called Pulse, and of the uh, deranged seeking celebrity killer at Parkland? And Doug Ducey did an amazing amount of research, as one would expect for a former Bain kind of guy, mm -hmm. and came up with eight steps that they're implementing. It will be the model for the nation. The Republicans will have a response to what is a purple issue. The March on Washington was uh, had a lot of extreme rhetoric, but a lot of normal people, right. and we got to watch that. The tax cut is working. Donald Trump's numbers at 42% approval, rivaling those of President Obama at the end of his first year. Mm -hmm. And if we have 4% growth, Bill, what do you think that means? What is 4%? We haven't experienced it since Reagan years. It means you can't say, are you better off than you were two years ago? Right. Yeah. So that's and, off the table, too. And uh, redistricting matters, but our crazy California primary. You weren't involved in bringing the jungle primary, were you? No, sir, I was not. I was not working for Arnold at the time. Okay, I just hate the jungle primary, but it's going to save the Republicans a few seats. For right. example, yeah, Dana Rohrabacher is going to be up against Scott Baugh right. in Newport Beach. And... Right. Um, uh, Daryl Ice is going to probably be succeeded by two Republicans. Mm -hmm. Those take seats off the board right. that Democrats could have picked up. That's a good thing for us. Right. But in California, it's interesting, Hugh, because it giveth and it taketh for Republicans. You will most definitely have a Senate race with two Democrats, and you could have a gubernatorial race with two Democrats as well. So I'm thinking we should. I'm actually more happy if we do. Uh, getting back to the idea of what is good ratings, it would be a fascinating race to watch Villaraigosa and Newsom run for one simple reason. These, Hugh, these are metrosexual Californians. These are slick coastal, tailored suits, slick back hair, open shirt wearing guys, having to go to Bakersfield and Fresno and Modesto and having to schlep for votes. Yeah, Antonio, <laughs> I was his appointee for four years on the California Arts Commission because he dared not remove me. I was the midnight appointee of Colonel Kurt Pringle when he lost his speakership. Was, uh, Antonio was a speaker at the time of the assembly? Yeah, and yeah. so Antonio came and he left me on, didn't want to fire me because uh -huh. Antonio is so smart politically. said, right. what's the upside of removing a guy from a commission when he's got a radio show? Uh -huh. And I was a pretty good arts commissioner. Antonio's so smart, if he can stay close, it's sort of like football. Hang around and stay close right. and then wait for the demographics of California, especially the newly emergent Latino majority, to say, Gavin Newsom doesn't do it for me. I'll bet you Gavin Newsom could walk around Orange County, California, and no one would know who he is. No, uh, you mentioned my old boss, Pete Wilson. I've picked him up at airports before, and the funniest thing happens to you. You walk through an airport, and people look at him, 
and they recognize him because he's been on TV for the better part of 30 years in California, but they don't know who he is. And so they stare at him for a while, and eventually somebody musters up the courage to go actually say, I know who you are. And then there's an awkward silence. They go say, were you an actor on TV? <laughs> Twitchy says, well, some might think that, but okay. So <laughs> I saw him just two weeks ago. He's terrific, in great shape, and it must have been fun working for him. You know, we used to fight all the time, Pete being a center-right, and I was a slightly more conservative Republican right. on the life issue. Right. But generally speaking, that man is next to George Schultz, one of the great living Americans, because they're both Marines, but George Schultz went ashore at Peleliu. Exactly. Uh, Wilson will be 85 this summer, same age as Diane Feinstein, by the way. Uh, as a recovering ex-Californian, by the way, tell me what you think of SB 54 and this rather interesting situation we have now where you have the federal government uh, going after the state on immigration sanctuary policy and now the sheriff of Orange County saying, I'm not going to obey the state law and I'm going to work with the feds. So who is suing whom? Have, have you looked at the bill and actually studied the law? I have not. I know the rule of law matters. I've been arguing the pot more than anything else. I am upset with states that declare a Schedule One drug to be not illegal. Mm -hmm. The money that comes in from that is, in fact, tainted and subject to RICO seizure. And so they're creating a second economy where in Colorado, for example, there are warehouses of, of smoky money right. uh, because they can't put it into a bank. A bank doesn't want to be. And so it's creating right. uh, a terrible dynamic, as we have in immigration enforcement. The rule of law matters, and immigration is specifically given by the Constitution to the federal government. And when Arizona tried to crack down on immigration, they lost. Mm -hmm. And when California tries to ease up on immigration, they should lose because the Constitution is clear. And if you don't like it, Article 5 says, go and amend it. Okay, and your thoughts on yesterday's hubbub. It's Trump's America. Every day brings a new hubbub. I was talking to a reporter the other day about Facebook, and I said, look, they have some serious problems. I think you'd agree they do. But keep in mind, 48 hours from now, we're going to be talking about something new and you know, disastrous for the country. And sure enough, now it's the census and asking the question about whether or not you're a U.S. citizen. Again, you're a legal scholar. What's the deal here? Uh, I was uh, pressed by a friend yesterday who's upset by this. And I said, the census law is a complicated set of facts. And uh, I'm not going to opine on it except to say I've got to go read someone who does census law as to whether or not a question that was asked through the 1940 census and then abandoned in 50 up till now can be reintroduced. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't understand the activist objection. I think it may be more political than legal. They say it will result in an undercount. I'm not sure that it will, but it will result in the appropriate appropriation allocation of congressional seats because only citizens can vote. Right. And so I'm not sure that we ought to let the former overtake the latter, but I'm an, I'm an agnostic on the question. I think every story is instantly politicized for the purposes of the tribal warfare that's going on. It can't continue. The age of Trump is too exhausting. And we will vote pendulum style for the person who is least like Donald Trump in the next presidential, whether it's in four years or eight years. Mm -hmm. As Obama was a, a reaction to Bush, so Trump is a reaction to Obama, right. we're going to go for the nicest person running. Right. The nicest person running who demonstrates competence and consistency. Who is that in the Democrats' bill? That's a good question because nobody is nobody has decided to embrace optimism. Nobody nobody has went back. Nobody has gone back and looked at Bill Clinton, who did two very clever things in 1992. He took bits and pieces of Ronald Reagan's agenda. He recognized that our party does not work as a national model. I've got to take a little bit from the other side. So what did he do? He embraced the death penalty. He embraced welfare reform. He embraced a middle class tax cut that never happened. So he accepted that the party that the nation is right of center on some issues. But then secondly, he talked about hope, as did Barack Obama. And 
people want to hear an optimistic tone. Show me who in America has been elected president by just relentlessly bashing the state of the nation and by relentlessly talking down people. Donald Trump. But after him, Tim Ryan is who you just described. Yeah. So but, is Joe but, Biden. But the Trump mantra, make America great again. So at least there was some yes. appeal to optimism. Optimism. Some, Tim some... Ryan is running on a on a rebuild the center of the country by bringing in venture capital to places where people can afford to buy homes. And it's a very powerful message. My theory here is the most important Californian these days is not Jerry Brown. It's not anybody running for governor. It's Anthony Kennedy. Oh, well, how interesting. And he is going to retire. And the former Ninth Circuit Justice has uh, stayed for one year to see the quality of appointments. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe that when the president amended his list of eligibles, he added one name, Brett Kavanaugh, D.C. Circuit, Kennedy Clerk. Okay. Uh, there are some, he's going to stick to that list. He's delivering on judges. He knows that that is actually why, and sometimes the most obvious thing is the most obvious thing. Evangelicals upset like me with the president's personal life understand that you only get four years or eight years and your judges get 40. His judges are men and women of exemplary character and judicial upbringing. They will save the Constitution as an originalist document. And I do believe Justice Kennedy is going to retire. And I get, I get the sense it's going to be Brett Kavanaugh unless he goes for a Joan Larson or someone, Amy Barrett, uh, to represent uh, the fact that he is open and, and solicitous of women joining the bench uh, with men in equal numbers. I'm always curious as to how the rumor starts. It shows up on the Drudge Report one day, but somebody has started the rumor somewhere in town, and I don't know if the justice himself started it or somebody close to him or just somebody with time on their hands, but it does seem to be around town that he's going to leave. Yeah, the clerk thing is not a good indicator because uh, retiring justices often have clerks who they either pass off or using right. their first year of, right. of chamber work. Uh, I believe that justices tell White Houses when they know they're going. Mm -hmm. And there are some significant cases that he's going to write the case. Uh, Kennedy will write the opinion of Masterpiece Cake Shop as to how we reconcile his jurisprudence, which is majoritarian jurisprudence now of marriage, with um, the Free Exercise Clause. He's going to write that, and then he's done. This he's also question, going to rule. This is a question whether or not a bakery can say no to a same-sex couple that wants a, a wedding cake. Right? It's also, by extension, um, can a Muslim baker be obliged to uh, bake a case in the image of the prophet? It's, uh, it's really tough. Is this America for the next 10, 15, 20 years huge? Is the courts having to decide things that legislatures and presidents and governors will not take on? It shouldn't be. We're not set up that way. And uh, we need to have the congressional leadership reclaim Article One authority. Uh, I, I would like to think it was going to get give you happy talk, but um, I've been lecturing on the hecklers that we're running into campus. It doesn't happen at Stanford. It's wonderful. Right. Uh, it didn't happen in Arizona State University. It doesn't happen at Chapman. But it happens in too many places where students are believing not in the free exchange of ideas, but in shouting. Okay. Final question I'll let you get out of here is I know you got to get some rest. In uh, the fourth way, you have this passage about governing, and you wrote, quote, governing in the key of we inclusively, energetically, and joyously, and celebrating freedom and prosperity. Can Donald Trump pull that off? It would be a political tsunami if he did. He seems constitutionally incapable of understanding the world as other than a conflict, which is a developer mindset. Uh, explain tsunami. Uh, tsunami meaning that if you had uh, an optimistic Donald Trump who was out there swinging the hammer on behalf of everyone and not swinging the hammer at some and Right. And with others, right. he could reassemble that coalition and expand it. Right. But that it's late in the game now because he got a year of tweets. His tweets this morning are the way that his social media could be used. They are upbeat, cautious, communicating policy, talking about developments. 
It's a it's Ronald Reagan invented a new way of campaigning for the president. So is Donald Trump. If he learns message discipline, which producers typically don't like, they like ratings. Mm -hmm. But if he learns that long term ratings uh, would be better served by short term Twitter discipline, no limit. A happy Donald Trump would be terrible for cable TV, though, wouldn't it? It would. And then they'd have to go back to covering the news. I'm thinking of that wonderful episode of The Simpsons where the, uh, they're going in to talk to the lawyer, Lyle Hutz, for the millionth time about some shady lawsuit. And Lyle Hutz goes, can you imagine a world without lawyers? <laughs> they, they cut to a bunch of people in a field just dancing around. <laughs> it would be a fun time. Very good. Hugh Hewitt, I appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on the show. Bill, uh, you're a professional. Great interview. Good luck with the podcast. And I hope, uh, how do people get the podcast? iTunes. iTunes iTunes. Of and course. Hopefully some people who go on your Twitter field will notice it as well. But anyway, seriously, thanks for coming into the show. It's pushing 7 o'clock now, so... Time to go to bed. Time to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. One of those avenues would be Donald Trump going back on Hugh Hewitt's radio show and talking about his policy. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of our fellows to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Hugh Hewitt, not surprisingly, is on Twitter as well. And his Twitter handle is, cleverly enough, at Hugh Hewitt. You spell that H-U-G-H-H-E-W-I-T-T. -T. Let me repeat that. At H-U-G-H-H-E-W-I-T-T. -T. Hugh Hewitt has an entire website, actually. The website is HughHewitt.com, where you can listen to his radio show, read his columns. You can join his book club if you want to. And speaking of the book, The Fourth Way, the conservative playbook for lasting majority, is indeed available on Amazon. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts of the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.